Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. And then on the recruitment, when I started to say, I know better than all of you, and, and I won't listen to you, that was wrong. And it was, a, you know, eating humble pie by getting fired and, and all this. And from that day, I thought to myself, I can never be, first of all, I, I should lose my big head. People will tell you I still have a big ego, but that's, that's life. But, but communication, not isolated, communicating, having a, a, a true stellar in everything we do. Well, I'm joined today by Damien Kamoli, who is the chairman of Toulouse uh, and former director of football at Tottenham, Liverpool and St Etienne. Uh, welcome, Damien. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on a fantastic season with Toulouse. Thank you. Thank you. It was, uh, as you know, it's, 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 it's a teamwork. It starts with the players on the pitch, the coaching staff. Uh, and everyone else at the club, but it's been an incredible, it's been an incredible journey, really. You know, in twenty, we bought the club in in July twenty, and from July twenty to uh, end of April twenty twenty two, we got promoted, um, and we got we wanted to get promoted. We were obsessed about the fact of being promoted. You know, we were on a mission, definitely, all of us at the club. But not only we wanted to get promoted, so last year we missed promotion by one goal, basically, which is probably one of the greatest injustice that French football has seen over the last 20, 25 years or 30 years. But anyways, and this year, not only we wanted to get promoted, but we wanted to get promoted in style. You know, our style of play, very attacking, and, and it's a record-breaking season on a lot of aspects. We scored... 82 goals just in the league, which is the highest number of goals called ever in the division in the history of French. French uh, professional football in, in the second tier, we scored the highest number of goals at home. We ended up with the manager of the season, player of the season, uh, record-breaking assist taker ever, um, golden boot and six players in, in, the, uh, in the team of the year, of the season. So uh, it, it's been an outstanding season. And on top of that, uh, our under-17s won the, the national championship on Saturday uh, by beating Ajaxo 4-0. Uh, our under-16s, 15, 14, 13, all won their respective leagues. Our uh, leaders team is on, on par to get promoted as well. So all in all, you know, I could say to people, it's not going to be like this every year. <laughs> so let's enjoy it, but it's been great. And when you talk about that injustice there last season, for people who don't know, was that because of the season being stopped because of COVID? No, that was the season before. Oh. No, it was because, you know, I encourage people to go on YouTube and have a look at it. Um, we were, so we were in the playoff final. It's two legs in France, and we were playing at Nantes. Um, and we lost our home on the Thursday, 2-1. And then the away goal uh, was 
uh, still in place. We were the last team being beaten, I think, in the history of football on an away goal. Anyway, so we went at Nantes the, on the Sunday, and we are one nil up. We are in total control of the game. We're playing really well, and there is an incredible handball in the box uh, with VAR. There was VAR, and it was not given, so it created a, um, how can I say a lot of waves, <laughs> a lot of a lot of issues in French football, and every you know everyone everyone said rightly so that we were in a situation that that was difficult to remember something like this, you know, this magnitude, because in the end we lost, you know, at the end of the game, we should have won 2-0 easily and, and we would have been in League 1. And instead of that, it's back to League staying in League 2, sorry, and, uh, and, and going again for a season. So it was incredibly painful uh, and incredible injustice. But in the end, in the changing room that day at Nantes, I told the players and everyone, I said, we were, everyone was in tears. We all were in tears because it was such an injustice. And I said to the players, I said, look, I give you my word, we'll come back stronger and, and we'll, we'll do it next year. So we came back a lot stronger and we did it. And it was very interesting what you were saying about how attacking and potent the team has been because... I've read you saying traditionally people think that good defences win titles, but you said you found that it's actually good attacks and scoring goals that win titles. Well, I was I was specifically referring to League Two. So when when we bought the club in the process of buying the club uh, in in April, May, and June 2020, uh, we started to negotiate during the, the first lockdown. We looked at a lot of different aspects. So I in in Throughout my career, I've never been in a situation where I had to build a team to win promotion. I knew how to build the team because I was in the situation of Saint-Étienne. My first time at Saint-Étienne, I got there in May or June 2004. They just won promotion. So I had to build a team to stay up. We finished sixth. So this I knew how to do. Building a team to get Champions League, winning trophies, you know, I did it or I was part of it. So I knew. Building a team to get promoted, I didn't know. And I want, and I approached this being very humble and trying to understand what was done before and why teams that get promoted do get promoted. And one of the many, many, many KPIs we looked at was, okay, to get promoted, how many goals need to be scored? How many goals need not to be considered? And then when we look at that, I realized that in over the last, I think it was 17 seasons or, or 16 seasons, which means 32 automatic promotions, only once the best defense get, got promoted. And it was constantly first and second offense got promoted, which got promoted. So that was point one. The second aspect of this is when we came in, when we came in, we did a lot of work on what was Toulouse FC, identity, culture, DNA, what people wanted to see, what the fans were expecting, what was, you know, the style of play, down to sociology of the city, the sociology of the fan base. And a lot of stuff that came back was in this area of south of France, people want to see attacking teams. And I said, okay, then, you know, that actually those KPIs actually match with 
the culture that we want to, or people want to see, let's say, because for me, a big, big part of the club culture is the playing style. So, and then the third aspect was quite selfishly, myself, my history, my past, you know, and the way I see football. And because I worked for so many years with Arsene, and I could, I, look, I can't even think about managing a team or, or being a, a chairman of a club where the team doesn't play football, doesn't attack. It's just in, it's, it's in my DNA as well. Um, and this transmission that Arsene gave me. So all, all this put together, it, it, came, it kind of became obvious that it's what we wanted to do. And, and we were very successful at it. I think that's very, very interesting about starting by establishing that identity um, because it maybe sounds simple, but I think a lot of clubs don't do that, even big clubs. So we did two things. The first thing, the first three, three weeks I, I was here, I was on my own. There was no one else. It was still in lockdown. My first appointment was the team doctor. I was so happy that finally I did a transfer. It was a team doctor. Second appointment was a data, head of data science, head of data analytics. Before that, I knew who I wanted to appoint out as kind of head of strategy. And I met everyone at the club, players, coaching staff, previous, um, all the players, all the staff. I met everyone. I met the mayor. I met, you know, political people. I, I spent a lot of time with the previous owner as well. I met the fan groups and then I realized that there was a total, the, the relationship between the city and the region and, and the football club was disjointed. There was no communication, no relationship. Interestingly, the, for people who never came to Toulouse, which I will presume most of your audience, the, the stadium, our campus, we have the state, here we have the academy, the pre-academy, the women's team, the stadium, we have everything on site. And this stadium is on an island in the middle of the, of the river, the Garonne. And the analogy I used a lot at the time and still as today is that there are four bridges that, that connect this, the, the stadium and, and the kind of campus we are on to the city. And, and I kept saying to people, those, those bridges have collapsed and over the years and we need to rebuild them. And we need to rebuild with communication, with engagement, with a different playing style with, with showing ambition and, and not being shy of saying we want to be promoted. The first thing I did the first day I came here, I said, we want to be promoted. So we did that and we completely rebuilt our identity in terms of the brand platform, marketing-wise, completely rebuilt it from, from scratch. We spoke to a lot of different people. We appointed a, a PR company, which is based in, based in Paris, called Buzzman. They never wanted to work in football, never wanted to work in sports. We convinced them to do it. And we created this, this brand platform and, and marketing identity that worked incredibly well to connect with our fan base. And then we did a lot of work. You know, I met, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting the, the fan groups four to six times a year, formally. And then we have a lot of discussion informally. So we went through everything, you know, what do you want to see in our corporate hospitality areas? What do you want to eat? What do you want to drink? What? We, went, we met with, uh, Toulouse is the second biggest uh, city in terms of uh, students, university students in France. 
So we got the eight biggest unions of students and association of students and say, what do you want to do? What do you want us to do for you to come to the stadium? They said, we have this, this and that. We delivered it and they come like crazy. So we did all this. And then internally, we did a really thorough work and process on, on the club, on the culture. So we try, I, I was born 100 miles from here. So the culture of the region, I, I know it very well. But I wanted to understand the culture of the city, the football culture of the city, the football culture of the fan base, what people wanted to see. So we met former players, former owners, former journalists, uh, former academy players, academy graduates, um, university teachers specializing in the sociology of, of fans of, of, in France. We had 16 one-on-one -on -one interviews for about two hours each. And then we met with all the staff of the club, the whole staff, and we asked them one single question. What does Toulouse Football Club mean for you? We gave them time. They created small groups. And then they came back to us and they said, OK, this is what Toulouse Football Club is, is, is for us. Because the club has been struggling for so many years, some stuff that came back was really harsh. So they said, Toulouse. Toulouse, FC is Toulouse, but the English word. Yeah. Uh, in two words. Um, uh, I mean, they were they, they they talked a lot. They thought about a lot about the foundation because foundation is is a key part of what we do in Toulouse for many years. So the staff were very proud of this. They talk about the academy. They did say we don't have any playing style. We don't have vision. We don't have structure. We don't have the right people in the right place. So we said, okay, we take all this in, in on board, and then with our head of strategy, Serenai Games, we we spend days analyzing all this content, you know, from those 32 hours of interviews, one-on-ones, plus all the content from roughly 200 people, you know, working at the club, part-time, volunteers, full-time, people been in for 40 years, people been in for four days. And, and we looked at all this and then we said to them, we fed them back because we wanted the people at the club to create the culture. We didn't want it to be created from the bottom, top to bottom. We wanted it from to be bottom to the top. And we wanted them, for them to embrace it, we wanted them to create it. So what we found is, we said, this is what we found. You asking us, to, you want to create a culture where it's a high performance environment based on excellence, you want to create a winning culture and to go from to lose to to win in English, they said it. Um, you want to uh, create, the fan, develop the fan base of tomorrow. You want to have a club with a vision, with the right structure, with the right people in place. You want to have, that was very interesting, you want to have a clear playing style in the first team, which is taken from what the academy has been doing, because the academy has been so successful over the years. People identify themselves with what, what works, right? And when nothing works, but the academy works, then they take that as a reference. And they say, we want the first team to play like the academy and not the, the academy to play like the first team. And, and so those are all the, what came back. And they say, okay, so we are here in terms of culture. This is where we want to go. You tell us how, you get, how we get there. And then we define groups and topics now, going forward, that we're going to work on for the next... So we've got a kind of deadline in November and another in next February 2023, where at the end of February 2023, all 
the topics I just told you, winning culture, blah, blah, high performance in our environment, then we definitely implement it at that time. And in the process, it's a, it's a work in progress. So we define groups around, like we have like instant topics, instant stuff that we can do very quickly to, to try to change our culture. We have what we call physiological debates. Um, we have what we call structuring projects around infrastructure at the club and facilities. And everyone is working on it. There is not one person at the club which, who is not working on it. And slowly but surely we turn it around. You know, we turn the culture. We're probably at 60%, 65%. But uh, as our head of strategy keeps saying, we need to be on top of it all the time because the negativity that used to be the how the club was defined can take over very quickly and, and bring everything down again. So I remember we, we had a huge game against Paris FC, which is the second club in Paris, back in April. The game was sold out. It was the first time that the stadium was sold out for, with only people from Toulouse. Before, it, it, it was sold out, but half of the stadium was Marseille fans or Paris Saint-Germain fans. It was sold out only with Toulouse people. And first set out since 2017 and first set out with only Toulouse people. And at halftime, we're nervous, we're not very good, we're one nil down. And our CFO tells me, that's, that's Toulouse, you know, that's Toulouse. And then we turn it around the second half, we win to one. The CFO comes to see me and says, that's the new Toulouse, that's the culture we want to implement. So, so that's why we're constantly fighting and making sure the old culture doesn't come back. And we are working on it, you know, massively. And Saturday, okay, it's only another 70 national championship, but first of all, the club never won it before. Secondly, the good thing is that even the national press picked it, picked it and saying, you know, what a season for Toulouse. This club that kept winning, losing, is now winning at every level. And so... That's why this process has been very, very interesting. We are not there yet, but I couldn't see myself managing this club without starting with culture. I just couldn't see it. And does that culture and identity then influence everything you do? So every staff member you appoint, every player you bring in, does it all come back to that original identity? Constantly. So we have two players on officer, and I always tell them, I'll just give you an example. I always tell them when they when we do a transfer and a new new recruit comes, a new player for the first team, as soon as he steps into your car, he needs to know about the culture. He needs to know what Toulouse Football Club is about. So every staff member is a situation where he's he's, he's guaranteeing, safeguarding our culture and spreading it around. Uh, and it's the same thing that you know, part-time people work for on match day. In, in hospitality or on the turnstile, they need, we, they need to be ingrained with our culture. And we, we pass that on constantly, constantly. It's the same with the players, what type of, of, of people we want to bring in. There is the player, there is the human being. So we, are, we make some very thorough research on the player's background and families and, and everything and, and his life in general. So yes, and, and as I said earlier, the playing style for me is a huge, a, a huge uh, top aspect of the club culture and identity. And our playing style goes from under seven, the under sevens to the first team. 
So we build up the same, we press the same, uh, we keep the ball the same way, you know, and there is a total alignment in playing style. Like we try to have total alignment in every every area of the club. Um, yeah, so we, we constantly come back to it. And the beauty of it is when, you know, if a CFO tells you, this is the new culture we want to implement, then you got somewhere. <laughs> mm. do, do you think that's where quite a lot of clubs go wrong in their player recruitment? They're not recruiting to a clear style and a, a clear identity. So they just select a good player, whereas they might not be good for what they're trying to do. It's a good question, but I, I think I will take that question a bit further and beyond that and say, even in senior staff appointment, you know, if a club appoints a manager or a head coach, that's this individual really fit what you are trying to achieve. And and during the time I was not working for a football club, I was working as a consultant and I've been approached many, many times at clubs, especially from England, saying, you know, we are looking for a manager, we're looking for a head coach, who will you go for? And my answer was always, what's your culture? Tell me what you want to achieve, and then I can advise you with some names. What's your culture? What's your playing style? What's your business model? Are you creating stars or are you buying stars? Uh, do you want to get to top four or do you want to survive you know, in Premier League or do you want to get promoted to the Premier League? So it's the whole, it's very, very holistic for me doing a work on identity and, and culture. And obviously, I will say the players are at the end of the chain. But it's every appointment before a player decision is made with a player coming or not that makes a difference. And, and obviously, I always come back to that, but it starts with playing style. So the way we manage the club here, we control the recruitment, right? The owners and myself and the senior management of the club, we control recruitment. And when we hired our current head coach last summer, we said to him, he said, but how does it work? I'm not going to have a say. I said, look, First of all, we will tell you, we will show you the players before they come. Secondly, this is what we want to implement as a playing style. So we are going to bring in players who perfectly fit that playing style that we expect you to, to implement on the pitch. And the reason we are appointing you is because the data is telling us that your playing style you've been using over the years matches with some you know, amendments matches and adjustments, matches with what we want to achieve. So, of course, a player, we want to be very attacking and, for example, you know, start with the full-backs and we must, we probably have the two most attacking full-backs in the league. And we are not, if we bring a full-back, we are not going to bring a full-back who can't play. You know, his physicality, his strength and, and whatever, maybe, you know, he's outstanding defendingly, defending, but he's not good offensively. We are not going to do that. We are going to match recruitment and culture. And playing style. And it was very interesting. You were talking about your head of strategy and culture. Was that a new role that you created? It's a, it's a role I, 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 I've been wanting to create for many, many years in the clubs I was working at, at. And what kind of triggered it, definitely convinced me to do it, is a, an article I, I, I read uh, two or three years ago, maybe more, in the Harvard Business Review. Uh, which I, I read every, used to be monthly, not by month, but every two months. And, and there was an article where people, the can't remember who was writing the article, obviously, but you were, they were saying that 
top CEOs nowadays need to be advised by someone who talks into their ear all the time and kind of challenges them. And at the same time, it makes sure that when decisions are made, this person makes sure that the decisions are being implemented. Because the most, when I'm in a leadership position, the most frustrating thing is you do meetings, you make decisions, you go, you decide to implement that whatever technique, structure, whatever. And then, and then there is no follow-up. So, so I wanted this person to be in charge or to help me with all the strategical aspects that we have at the club, from academy to recruitment to management to who do we appoint, uh, anything you can think of. Very important, the follow-up, when we make decisions. So we had a meeting last week on... Uh, with the senior academy staff on next year, one of the things we want really to focus on is how to improve cognitive skills and we and what cognitive skill do we improve, the, try to improve the first, which is, you know, related to football and not to other sports. So. And, and that typical, the next review of the next time we will meet, that group will meet to talk about this, is probably in six months. I don't have time to have, you know, to think, oh, in six months I need to meet that group. So this person who is in charge of a strategy has got all the projects we have going on. Last year we were up to 62 projects. So who leads it? When do we meet? What, uh, you know, what time, what day? After the meeting, when do we meet again? We implement. So this is done. Review in 12 months, review in 18 months. This hasn't worked. Okay, why is not work? Start again. Maybe change the, the, the working group. So all this, and then all, and then that person is also in charge of challenging me in everything I, I, I do and think, and you know everything. I, I, I keep telling her, you need to give me your opinion on everything we do, and you need to challenge me, because the worst I've been when I, I've been throughout my my career as a director, let's say, when I made the bigger mistakes is when I was isolated. So sometimes you're sometimes you're in a club which is so political, like Fenerbahce, that people for different reasons people try to isolate you because they want power, they want money, they want this, they want that, and that's typically what I I had to go through at Fenerbahce. So you have to fight not to be isolated. Sometimes you isolate yourself because you are going through a bad time because you have big heads and you think you know it all, which is what happened to me in the past. And that's where really I know that I failed because of this. Mm. Other time people ask, I, leadership, leaders are isolating themselves just because it's their personality, you know, it's their character. I don't think I'm like this. So, so being not being isolated and having a kind of truth teller all the time uh, is has been very very has a massive massive improvement in what I do. Yeah. And then the culture aspect is everything I talked we talked about. But this work I couldn't do myself either. I needed someone who had a clear strategy, a very high EQ to understand the culture, the people, and where we were going. Because I guess it takes a lot of humility, doesn't it, on your part to bring someone like that in, a truth teller. Do you think there's a bit of a culture in football where people try and show no weakness 
and especially in the leadership position, show no weakness, no vulnerability? I, I, I don't think it's only in football because I spend a lot of time with a lot of, a lot of friends. I've got a lot of friends in the, in the high-performance world industry and I don't think it's only in football. I think it's only in business as well. So other sports and business and politics and whatever it is. Um, I often say, for me, the first the first skill, one of the, the main skills of a leader is, is, is the vulnerability. Mm. Uh, is to show that we, you've got weaknesses. You know, to tell... If, you, if I'm in a meeting and I keep talking about my successes, there's no point. If I'm in a meeting and, and, I, and I will say, okay, when I recruited that player, that was a failure for this reason and that reason. I recruited that manager and he was a failure. It was a failure for that reason and this reason. And by showing your vulnerability, you, you become a different leader. And by becoming a different leader with the vulnerability aspect and not only telling the good stories, but the bad stories, I think it brings, then people are not scared to speak and not scared to come up with ideas, not scared to come up with suggestions, not scared to fail. That's very important. You know, one of the things that came back from all of those, the, the meetings on our culture, uh, one group told us, two groups told us, we want a culture where we are allowed to fail. And we want a culture, and that was in English, the, free, the wording was put in English. Feedback, they said, one group said feedback is a gift. And so they wanted instant feedback, you know, rather than annual reviews. They, they wanted a system, uh, they want to create a system down on, on the course of doing it, where they get, where we do instant feedback with people. Another, this other group said, let's create an environment which is safe, so safe that we are not scared to fail. But if me as a leader, myself as a leader, the meeting, the first meeting I come in and I say, this is what I've done in the past, this is all my successes, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm untouchable, it can't destroy me, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. Both as a leader and as an organization, we are not going anywhere. So I totally, to, you're totally right that this vulnerability aspect for me, I very often start a meeting the, the, first recruit, the first recruitment meeting, usually I'll say, oh, that, yeah, I remember that day we signed that prayer. I should, I, I should have stayed in bed rather than make that decision. And then, and then it changed the dynamic of everything, mm. of everything we do. Yeah. And can you, in a funny way, be weak when you're very successful? Because that was interesting what you said. Maybe you get a big head and... Maybe we've all experienced that, where you can be successful and then you take your eye off the ball a bit and you get a bit complacent. Um, and that's when you can make mistakes and go wrong, maybe. So when it happened to me, I didn't get complacent at all. I was maybe even more obsessed in my work and, and trying to put in more quantity in the work rather than quality in the work. Um, but I was in a tunnel. So rather than working more, I should have worked maybe less, but not being an eternal and listen to people around me. You can't get complacent if you have big head. So okay, I'm there. You know, you become complacent. The experience I had is definitely was not there. I was even trying to do more, but I was doing more with this this tunnel tunnel vision that was taking me nowhere, and I, I stopped listening to people. 
And now I try, I try to, to be, I mean, I'm totally different. I work less than before, a lot less than before. I mean, a lot, no, I would not say a lot, lot, no. But I work less, so I used to come in the office at seven. I come at nine. I used to live at nine, ten. I live at seven. Because I know I need time to reflect on the strategy. I need time to reflect on myself. I need time to reflect on the strategy. Why do we want to take this football club in the next ten minutes? three, four, five, ten years. What I'm going to say to the players if I need to speak to them? What I'm going to say to the manager? What I'm going to say to this person? What do we do with the academy? What do we do with this? And if you are constantly working, 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 working into this tunnel, I, I think that's the biggest mistake. Um, so I read an article recently. I think it was in HBR also. Where there was, yeah, it was in Harvard Business Review. They were, they were indicating how, how the biggest corporate companies in the world are, are picking their CEOs. And they were saying that before it was, you know, you were either CEO or CFO, and then you were promoted. It was one of the two, a promoted CEO. CEO. And now the, the research they were doing, they were showing that a lot of people, and they are calling them, I think, the Heldel CEO or something like this. Those, so they jump, you know, from, from not C-suit, the level below, they jump to CEO position. And they will say that more and more uh, companies tend to appoint people who in their jobs, like they had to run the business for a whole country or, or, or the business for, uh, I don't know if they build this, if it's a car manufacturer. And for instance, they were running the engine part, you know, and, and the they were saying in the article, the reason they do it is because it's actually those people need to develop a strategy where CEO or CFO, they are not so much about strategy, but it's day to day. And I, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of talked to me that article massively because it, I'm thinking this is where I was and this is where I don't want to be anymore. And what I'm trying to be is this strategic aspect. Um, and for instance, I admire, so Dave Bracefold is incredibly gifted at this. I've known them, they've worked for a long time, we're very good friends. And I'm always impressed where he managed to kind of step back and think, think strategically. And that it took me a while to, to do that and to realize, you know, how important he was. Um, and having a, a, a truth there around, around me um, has, has changed that aspect a lot. And who is the person who does that head of strategy and culture role for you? Is someone, is someone, we work together in Fenerbahce, her name is Selina Igorgenj. He's someone who has a bachelor in economy, three MBAs. But for me, the, 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 in this role, the most important aspect is the EQ. It needs to be somebody who, is, who has got a very, very, very high emotional, uh, how can I, sense of fiber in, in himself. Yeah. You know, to sense what's going on in the club. You know, who is upset? Who is fine? Who are we going to the right direction? Are we going to the wrong direction? And 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 so we had this incredible, incredibly interesting conversation during the winter, up to December. So we started the game, the, the season. We incredibly, we did incredibly well. Not so much in the playing style, but we were winning games for fun probably the tables were lying at the time because of what we were producing was not 
should not have brought us that many points and wins. But anyway, and then we we lost the first game at home, and then we really struggled for the next ten or uh, thirteen games actually. And then that person was thinking was saying, okay, we need to think strategy, we need to think long term, long term. And I kept saying, no, it's about winning the next game. And now I know this time I need to focus on this. I need to help the coach and the team to win the next game. So you kind of have this long strategic thinking, you know, what do we do next? And are we making the right decisions? And me coming back to high level sports is about winning the next game. Just focus on winning the next. Don't talk to me about six months or 12 months, whatever. Let's focus on Saturday and win the next game. And we won it. And it kind of turned our season around again. So it was, you see, it's always this discussion. Um, but at the same time, I know when I have to step in on the day to day, then I step in. And having read interviews with you in France, the identity comes across very strongly. Um, and also the importance of the data, because I've read you saying data informs everything we do, the recruitment, the style of play, the set pieces. Well, we try to be um, the Alex, uh, uh, the person who is, Alex Shino, the person who is in, in charge of the, of the sport inside of, of the fund of Redbird Capital Partners, our owners, he, he was over recently. And after half a day of his trip, he said, you guys have built an incredible culture at the club in a very short period of time. And I said, look, I, we want, we are at the same time extremely data-driven and extremely culture-driven. He said something very interesting. His, his reply was, then you got the perfect balance. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we have the perfect balance, but that's what we aim for, right? It's never perfect. But yes, we are extremely data-driven, and yes, we are extremely culture-driven, and I think both can work easily together. And part of our culture is the use of data. We don't hide from it. You know, people know. It can it can look like a running joke among our fan base, where they say, "Oh, we are we 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 again sign a player no one no one knows about, and then dot 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 is going to be the best player in the league next season." No, that's how even our fan base know, know that now. Uh, um, so, yeah, it works. For me, it works. It, it, there is no reason for, for culture and data not to work together. We are data-driven. We are culture-driven. I think sometimes people think it's either or, don't they, and that they're opposite things, and you can't have one without it, with the other. But obviously you're saying you can. Well... One of, yes, definitely. One of the biggest, so when the, when the owners were here, uh, the same person I like, he asked me a question. He said, what's your big, biggest takeaway of the season? And I told him, because I, I, I've been thinking about it for a while, and I told him the biggest takeaway for me of the season is that the, the playing style optimized talent. So last year we had a team in second division, and I mean in League Two, we had a team, we sold the player to Bayer Leverkusen, he starts every game for me too. We sold the player to Mönchengladbach, he starts every game for Mönchengladbach. We sold the player to Serie A, he plays every game in Serie A. Plus all the players we kept and new players. So last season team was very good also. And this season team, where everyone told us you sold your best players, but first of all, we didn't have a choice. Secondly, yes, we did. But we had a better team. And, and talent optimization 
talent optimization was at the, the, the top of what we could do because the playing style was exactly fitting what we wanted to achieve and the playing style fit exactly the players we signed and the players fit exactly the playing style. And coming back to what I was saying earlier, the players, the data drives us when we sign players. The data drives us when we define what we do, where, how we attack, where we press, etc. And the and the data define kind of define our playing style, and our playing style defines our culture, right? So it's a full circle if you think about it, and that's why I say it it works. Mm. And we actually had Luke Bourne on our podcast a few months ago, who was very very interesting. Um, so he's heads up Zealous Analytics, and are they basically your data division then at the club? Yeah, so so uh, Zealous was purchased. Or Luke Luke created Zealous Analytics with a with a business his business partner, and then we started to work together uh, at Redbird Capital Partners, and then Redbird Capital Partners then purchased fifty uh, percent of Zealous Analytics. So now Zealous is within the family of Redbird. Uh, so yes, they are a data provider. Well, actually, we we buy Zeus buy raw data from from three different data providers, and then we've got our data developer, our own algorithm and, and and website where we we can analyze all the players. Uh, I think they have eight or nine analysts based in the US PhDs okay. that work on into on Toulouse, and then we have a head of data here in Toulouse who links with Zeus. And with the rest of us at the club. That's interesting. So do you have an algorithm then that defines your playing style and that then helps you sign players who can fit that? <laughs> Both. So we sign if we see a player with a great opportunity, we will tend to go for him, I will say even almost regardless. But at the same time, because the starting point is the the model, the analytics model is is massively focused on on offense. So we give a lot more weight in the model, in a lot more weight to offense than to defense. So if a player props up on the model, the likelihood is that the model will have identifying him based on his attacking skills. So so which means comes back to first full circle to our playing style, which is attacking. And the model helps us fine-tune our playing style, I will say, being even more precise in what we want to achieve. And yes, he helped us. We scored, we scored 35% of our goals on set plays, which is very high. We opened to score one every two games on, set, on a set play uh, this season. So, and that set play helped us to define our strategy. Uh, sorry, data helped us to define our strategy on set play. And then there is recruitment. We use data to analyze our own players. We use data to analyze the opposition. Um, we, you know, we use data on identifying the, the head coach. We use data on what I call contract management. So do we extend the player's contract? Do we don't extend? If we extend, for how long? Why? Um, you know, everything we do. And we use data a lot as well on optimizing our resources in terms of transfer fees and wage bill. Mm -hmm. So our head of strategy and head of data of data analysis, they spend many, many, many hours since September 
2021, where you know we thought we need to be prepared, you know, in case we come up. I always say we've got one saying: we say we can't we can't lose, but not because we are not prepared. You know, we want to be prepared, and we are prepared. So they did the preparation from September 21. They started to prepare for the League One season of 22-23. And one of the things they looked at, and it was a very interesting approach, is how to optimize the wage bill. You know, we're going to be probably 15, 16th wage bill out of 20, and next year there will be four relegations because there is a challenger format of competition. The following year, there will be only 18 teams in League One. So they worked on how do we optimize the wage bill which position do we need to pay more? How do we optimize our budget on transfers? Which position do we need to pay more? To pay more? So, and that obviously we did that using data. Is it hard with Zealous being based in America, or does that work okay? okay. Very easy, because we've got our head of analytics who is here. He's got access to the whole Zenus, you know, potential. So they talk on a weekly basis, and then and so it's very easy. And then we look at structuring project as well, you know. So I don't know how could, how can we improve our throwings? This is a, this this is we massively improve our set plays, and we are now working using data, trying to improve our our throwings, uh, you know. So those are more structuring projects, and then the day to day is what everything else I described. Would there then be a tie up then with the coaching staff based on the data insights? Of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So our head of analytics, he links up with the coaching staff on a daily basis and also with the head of analysis. So the head of analytics and the head of analysis I often say that they are one. It's not two people, it's one. And they, they constantly work together. Therefore, when we work on set plays, offensive or defensive set plays, we mix the data and the video and then we get the coaches in as well. And we get players input as well, which is very important. So by, by doing that, then there is a full connection and a, and a full alignment, which can always be improved. The communication can always be improved and alignment can always be improved. Um, but yes, there is this, this constant communication, constant connection. And last, last season, so our analyst is working, our head of analytics is working on it at the moment. So... At the, the pre-season last, this, so in summer of 21, after missing promotion by one goal, the way I described it earlier, we said, okay, what we need to be more precise and more efficient in the way we communicate information to the coaching staff. Because last year with the previous coaching staff, we didn't feel we did the right job, a, a, a good job at it. And we didn't give, get the right feedback from the coaches as well. So we said, how do we change that? So what they did, what he did, he came up with 10 KPIs that if we won, so we, he looked at the last 34 teams promoted. He looked at what they were doing and he found 10 KPIs that if we were as good as those teams or better, we will win promotion. And in September, so after every international break, so we did that, we looked at that after every game in the post-match report. And then after every international break, at, sorry, at every international break, so September, October, November, we got together with coaching staff and we showed them where we were. And then we did it again at, at the break, at the winter break. 
And all of those things, they we dominated all of them and we finished at the sorry of the season, we were first everywhere. And not only we were first everywhere, but we beat any of the 32 previous teams uh-huh. on, on ten on, on all of those KPIs, but one. And when we did the review post-Christmas, we showed it to the to the coaching staff. And one KPI we were we were 18th out of 20th. Luckily, it was the less decisive KPI, so it was okay. But still, and the coach, the head coach said, it's not acceptable. Can we have a meeting just to focus on this, myself and the analyst? You told me through it, and we need to improve this. It's not acceptable. So it was kind of, you know, the coaching staff taking that on board and say, okay, we need, we need to improve that. And we went from 18 to 8 at the, at the, at the end of the season. Oh. Uh, Do you need, remember what that KPI was? Yeah, it was. So we were because we had sixty-seven percent or sixty-four percent position on average out of the thirty-eight league games. By definition, most of the goal chances created by the opposition will be on counter-attacks, right? On, on on transitions, and we were poor at stopping those goals, goal opportunities created by the opposition on counter-attack. At Christmas, we were 18th. So the coaches had to change the way we were setting up when attacking, I would like preventing defending, if you like, when we had the ball. It, can, it sounds strange, but it's how do you defend when you have the ball? Right. And, okay. and, and the best team do that. So Man City do that fantastically. Liverpool do that fantastically. So we had to set up differently when we had the ball to make sure that if we were considering a transition, we could stop that, you know, the other team from playing straight away. Okay. And it was difficult because when you have the ball all the time, they're going to play deep, the other team will sit deep, wait, and then try to counter. So we had to create a counter to counter, if you, to counter, if you, if yeah, you, yeah. if you, if you, And were you involved with Redbird then before they bought Toulouse? Were you already on board? Yeah, so... For many years, there is one person at Redbird, we've been friends for many, many years, and he kept saying, we need to work together, we need to buy Claire, we need to work together. I said, look, I'm here. <laughs> and and then uh, when I was at Fenerbahce, I signed for Fenerbahce in June 18. In December 18, they called me and they said, we are about to buy, but this person called me. He said, our partner with Jerry Cardinal and, and, and Alex Shiner at Redbird, they are great guys, great people, and we are going to buy a club in the Premier League and uh, we want you to run that club. I said, well, I'm under contract. And they said, okay, can, can we pay off your contract? <laughs> and I said, it's not as easy as this. I didn't really want to leave Fenerbahce at the time. I didn't want to leave at all, actually, because the club was in trouble. I just got there. I didn't have a good feeling about leaving. And then in the end, the deal didn't go through. They, could, they didn't buy that Premier League club. But we stayed in touch. And then they used to call me on a monthly basis, you know, every couple of months. And then I left Fenerbahce on 16th of January, 21. On 18th, they called me. They said, we are coming to London next week. Can you come over? And we'd like to talk to you. So I flew out to London. They visited a few clubs in England that they were looking at to buy. And then they said, can we, meet, can we chat more? What, 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 are you going, what are you doing the next few weeks? I said, actually, I'm going to the Super Bowl in Miami. Then I'm going to a conference. Then I'm going out west uh, to visit a couple of teams and say, can we meet? And yes, and then we met again, and then that's where we agreed to, to work together. So there was no to lose, there was no particular focus at the, at the time on one club. We just said we are going to work together. So the answer is yes. 
And what made you and them choose to lose? So when the, the first or second meeting we had in Miami around the Super Bowl time, um, they came with a massive foul. They had analyzed 70 clubs, visited 50 physically over three years. One of them was to lose, and they showed me the picture, so I, I, I knew they came. And we went through a lot of, we went through a lot of clubs. You know, they kind of wanted my input about European football market and football industry. You know, is that a good city? Do they have a good stadium? What's the fan base like? Stuff like that. And because I've been doing it for so many years, and you know, I've got quite good knowledge in, in so many so many different countries. Uh, I've got quite good knowledge of of which club is what across Europe. And then they define. So Jerry Cardinal, the, the owner, managing partner of the firm, and then Alec, who is in charge of the the sporting side, they define four criteria to pick a club. One was a very dynamic, economically and demographically city. A city, Toulouse is the third youngest city in Europe. As I told you about students earlier, it's incredibly dynamic economically because there is Airbus, all the aviation industry, aerospace industry, I and mean, it's huge. They wanted a club with a good facility and we've got a great stadium. Uh, they wanted a club with a very good academy and it's one of the best academies in Europe, in Toulouse. And they wanted a local partner that was reliable and they could work with. And the, and the previous owner, well, current owner where we started talking, wanted to stay on as a minority shareholder. So it fits exactly the four criteria that were defined. And that's when we, and then it was for sale, obviously. <laughs> and then that's, and uh, we know that, you know, very clean business, um, lot of potential in the club, in the city, everywhere. So that's why we went to, to, for Toulouse. Okay, and your title is chairman, but is it similar to a technical director role that you've had previously? So I do both. I, I, I really do a chairman job. You know, we've got a CEO here, uh, Olivier Joubert, who used to work for Nike for many, many years and for the league in France, who does all the commercial and all the business aspects. And, and then I'm the chairman, and then I run, I run the, the, the football side I was about to say day-to-day. It's not day-to-day because I don't have time. But I also run the football side with a kind of strategic committee where there's our head of data, uh, our head of recruitment, our head of strategy, and we will make most of the decisions together and then with the owners as well when it comes to the big decisions. And do you have a lot of link-up with the other clubs in Redbird's uh, portfolio? Like Liverpool, they've got a shareholding, AC Milan now. Um... So Liverpool... So Toulouse is owned by a different financial vehicle, which is called Redbird FC. So Redbird FC owns Toulouse, owns uh, the part part of the uh, uh, cricket team in the IPL, and Zelus Analytics. Uh, AC Milan is new, obviously. Uh, so this is uh, you know only last week, yeah. and uh, the involvement in Liverpool, uh, well actually not in Liverpool, in Fenway Sports Group, is with Redbird. Capital partner, not with Redford FC. It seems that England has come a long way with the director of football role now because you were one of the pioneers. You were one of the first, really. Um, do, do you think it's a lot easier now because it's a more recognised role? People are clearer about it. I think it's a lot easier. Yes, uh, you know, yeah. from, compared to the the, the the day I started my first press conference at Spurs, and they said, you know, it will never work in England. It doesn't work, and then. I was not very clever by saying, well, 
as far last time I checked, even football in England, he play he's played eleven v eleven with a ball and two goals. So that didn't go down very well, as you can imagine. Uh, but I remember that day saying, in fifteen years, every club will have a director of football, sporting director. Yeah. Now it's a, you know I get on LinkedIn, uh, you know amongst other things, I get constant requests from people working in League Two, in non-league, saying, you know, I'm a sporting director, I'm director of football, can we connect? So it's across the board that really, across all the division, across yeah. all the pyramid in England, that, that, that the role exists. Yeah. And yeah, people like myself, Frank Arnesen, you know, we kind of paid the price for it, but, but it was the right thing to do. And I, I remember when things were really, really difficult at Spurs, for me, PR-wise and with the press, uh, I was part of a uh, a youth a, a working group on youth development, which involved the the, the football league, the Premier League, the FA, uh, and I was one of the two representatives of the Premier League. And Howard Wilkinson was sharing that group. And one day there was a very bad article in the press. I can't remember which newspaper it was. And I came in into the meeting and probably Howard oh, saw my face. It said, "Look, everybody is telling you that director football in England doesn't work." Well, when I coached, I was coaching in North County in 1978. I was working with director of football. So don't let people to think or tell you that it, it, it didn't exist because it existed well before you. And that kind of, it didn't cheer me up, but it made me smile because uh, whole world is over. And it was 1978. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's always seemed to have been this mistrust of thinking that the director of Football is imposing players on the manager, and the manager gets players they don't want. That that's kind of the mindset a lot of people have. But to be fair, it happens. It depends on the setup of the club. I mean, you know, there are clubs. I don't know in, in England, but there are clubs on the continent, top clubs, you know, playing Champions League every year. Where it's basically they they will let the manager. So the manager will say, "I need the right back," and they will say, "Okay, this is the right back." And other clubs will say, I need the right back. Okay, this is a list of three. We think you should go for one, number one, but we are comfortable if you go with number two, number three. So really, you know, and, and it, it depends on the culture of the club. It depends on the country. It depends on so many different, different things. Of course, every, we all want to achieve to be in a position where everyone is aligned. You know, we, everyone at the club wants this particular player. And it's like this every year, but you know, we we we're not living in. It's not Disneyland. It's the real world. Yeah. And and it doesn't it doesn't happen like this. So yes, there are discussions, but again, it depends. Sometimes the, the the manager has got the last say. Sometimes contractually, they want to have a kind of veto and the last say. Some clubs will not allow that to happen. So you know, every club is different, and I respect every culture uh, and of, of every club. Yeah. As long as is functioning. Yeah. Was that difficult at Liverpool and Tottenham, that kind of conflict with the manager? At Liverpool, not at all. At Liverpool, not at all. At Tottenham, yeah, at times. But Daniel was very, Daniel was very clear in what, in what how he wanted the club to be set up and structured. And he's been very consistent throughout the years. You know, so I was there, then I left, then Stevie Chin took over, then Fabio Paratici is now football managing director, which is even, you know, in terms of title, which is even more prestigious. And I think he gives, that gives him even more weight in the football club. So, 
Um, I think it all comes from the board. It's, if the board is doesn't play with the culture of the club and what it's trying to achieve and the culture it wants to implement. Because the sorting director is the safeguard of the culture, clearly, and of alignment in the club day to day. So as long as the board is true to itself in, in the way, if they want a sporting director, there is a reason, and then they support him, and then the manager or the head coach who's come in, he knows that structure, that, that's, that's the structure, and he knows that's how the decisions are going to be made. And he knows the sporting director is there for the long term, thinking, sorry, long term, and he needs to win every game. And it's two different roles. And when you talk about the long term, I suppose someone like Jordan Henderson sums that up, really, because people were saying he was a bad signing when you made that signing. And he's obviously gone on to become the captain during a massively uh, successful period for them under Jurgen Klopp. But that's the difficulty also of the role. And I, I remember telling this to Daniel Levy many times when I was at Tottenham. So at Tottenham, I was under the strict instructions to sign players who were only under 24, 25, 24, 25, and, and to get into Champions League. And then as we were doing that, people were saying, yeah, but he's not ready. Yeah, but you want me to sign young players. Yeah, but he's not ready. Yeah, but he's young. You know, you cannot be young and ready at the same time. It just doesn't exist. It just doesn't. Or, or maybe Messi and Ronaldo, but there is two in the world in the last 40 years. So, yes, they are young because the club policy is to sign young players, but then, but then you have to wait for them. You have to be patient. And in two, three, four years, we think it's going to be world-class. But don't ask him to be world-class today. You know? So don't judge him on today's performance. Don't judge me on today's performance. Judge me in two or three years. So, yeah, coming back to your question about Jordan, it's, it's, it's exactly this. And quite a few of your protégés have gone on to become sporting directors, haven't they? So I'm thinking Stuart Webber at Norwich, who's very well known here. Now, he, he worked with you on the recruitment team, didn't he, at yeah. Uh, Liverpool? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Michael Edwards yeah. as well, yeah. is he? Stuart, Stevie Chin at Spurs, Michael Edwards at Liverpool, ah. uh, Ricardo Piccini at Spezia, and in the group that owns uh, they own three or four clubs, he's football CEO, and then probably others that I, I forget. Yes, but for me, look, I always think about this. In the US, in the NFL, they have very often they talk about a coach, a head coach coaching coaching tree. So they will say, you know, the legendary Bill Walsh was, I'm a 49er fan, so he was my, my, one of my ideals. And then they said, Bill Walsh coaching tree is this. So he had this, uh, you know, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, special team coach, and then he went on to be a coach, he went this and this. And they do, and they do the same with Billy Cheek and, and, and top coaches. And I always felt, not obviously, you know, I'm not comparing myself to any of those legends. Far away from that. But I always felt part of my role as a leader and a sporting director is to grow leaders. I think if I didn't, if I was not a position, if I didn't create an environment where leaders, the future, the leaders of tomorrow grow into that environment, into my football club, I will be probably the biggest failure as a leader ever. And I always try to appoint people who are much brighter than me, point one. And secondly, I want people to grow. And, and, and I'm, I'm very, and, and also 
I'm very conscientious of the fact that in my position, because I've been so lucky and privileged to get where I am, I need to give back to the industry. I need to give back to football. And one of the reasons I talk to people like you is because the small experience I have and I can share, I want everyone to know about it. You know, whether they say it's terrible or it's useless or it's great, but at least, you know, they have an opinion. <laughs> and and so so part of it is what I'm doing with you and part of it is is to grow people around me and to, sorry, not to grow people around me, to create an environment where people can grow. And then they can go on and be the sporting director of Liverpool or Spurs or Special or, or Norwich or, or wherever. And if I didn't do that, I think I think I'll, my leadership and my time in the, in the sports industry will be a failure. Mm. And did you hire Michael Edwards then as an analyst to start with? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, what do you think of what he's achieved? Yeah, it's fantastic what they've done, what they achieved is, is fantastic. But they had a great alignment between, you know, at one point they had perfect alignment between Michael Golden, Michael Edwards, and, and Jürgen Klopp. And that perfect alignment that they have, the three of them, has created that success. Should it be a worry for the fans that Michael Edwards has gone now with the success that he's had? To be honest with you, I've been thinking about this a, a bit. I, I don't know because I don't know the, the, the person, I don't think I know the person who is taking over for Michael. Uh, they still have Mike Gordon, who is key in, the way, in what we do, they do for me, for me sports group on a day-to-day running of football club. They still have European club, obviously. So there is no reason that the person they picked to replace Michael cannot step up into that environment. Super. And I, I'm actually going to ask one more, if you don't mind. Um, you, you talked about the one time you got big-headed in your uh, career. Where was that? That, that happened? Tottenham. Ah, right. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, just for, for a final... Well, uh, I, I, so... I don't like to talk about it like this, but <laughs> so I I was at I was at uh, I was at Arsenal as a European scout, and then I was recruited by Saint Etienne, and I get there I was uh, thirty two I think I was the youngest sporting director across the four, the five leagues you know at the top tier. Arsenal received had a, a lot of success. We had a great success in signing young players that Arsenal develop and his coaching staff, <clears throat> especially the French players. So I get recruited by Saint-Étienne, didn't even know what sporting director was or was supposed to do. And so got there, as I said earlier, they got promoted and then we finished sixth, which was the best finish they had for 18 years. We missed, we missed Europe by a goal, I think, or two goals because we drew in Monaco the last day. So we got into a, the, the old Intertotoka. And then there are a lot of changes in the club. I don't like, I leave. And at this time, I can't remember which magazine around Europe, there's a selection of the 10 best sporting directors in Europe. And they, I rank, they rank me number three. And then Spurs, Frank Anderson leaves Spurs, uh, Spurs to go to Chelsea. Spurs, Spurs are on the market. They appoint a, a recruitment company, Nolan Partners, to find you know the, the new sporting director at Tottenham. And the first time, so I had two or three calls, they called me, I had two or three calls from them, and then I met them in London. And the person was I met with 
yeah, the fab, like 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 a file like this one, you know. And I could see the front page of that magazine, anything. So obviously they looked at this and they said, "Who's this guy?" And then I start. I went through the whole process, uh, met with Daniel Levy, um, started to kind of advise him on transfers. I was I was not there. Uh, so we spoke at length, at length that summer. I signed for Tottenham, and then we go and we qualify for Europe, first time forever. And then we win, we win the Carling Cup, first trophy since 1991, and the last trophy they won in, in 2008. Mm -hmm. And we have Bale, and we have Modric, and we had Berbatov, and we had this, and we had that. And then, you know, people talk a lot, you know, oh, you are great, or oh, you are this. And, Daniel extended my contract for five years. He wanted to put a release clause at 10 million because Frank, you know, got, uh, when he went to Chelsea, Daniel got a lot of money from uh, Roman Abramovich. Um, except, and then I'm like, you know, I'm, my feet don't touch the ground. And then that's where I started. There was a time, there was a period where I was, if I was watching a player, first of all, I was totally a tunnel vision on focusing only on signing players. So I was not looking at the culture, at the playing style, at who, you know, is it a culture fit? Is the club working well? Is it functioning well? Is the training, people happy at the training ground? Are the players happy? Is the connection between the players and the coaching staff the right one? All this I totally blanked. It was just recruitment, 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 recruitment. A total tunnel vision. And, and a kind of approach saying, look, I know. <laughs> I know. So don't tell me because I know. I've proven it. And I remember one specific signing where Stevie Chin, who was a kind of European scout for us at the time, he went to see the player. He said, Damien, don't sign him. And I said, Phew. I remember very well in my head saying, you know, what is he talking about? Of course I'm going to sign this player. And the player was a failure. Mm. And, look, and, and then looking back, so this kind of tunnel vision took, I definitely took my eyes off the ball for all the rest which was a learning process after, <laughs> not during, you know, it's when you reflect. Yeah. And, then, and, then, and then on the recruitment, when I started to say, I know better than all of you and, and I won't listen to you, that was wrong. And it was, a, you know, eating humble pie by getting fired and, and all this. Um, so it was a great, and from that day, I thought to myself, I can never be, First of all, I, I should lose my big head. People will tell you I still have a big ego, but that's, that's life. But, um, but communication, not isolated, communicating, having a, a, a true stellar in everything we do, uh, listening to people. So, yeah. I mean, look, at 32 and at 50, I'm 50, you, you're not the same, right? You think you know everything and you get to 50 and you think you know nothing. Yeah. And I always have this thing of Arsene telling me all the time, the more time I spend in football, the less I understand it. Mm. He says that all the time. And then I, I, when he says that, I'm looking at him and I think about myself. I'm thinking, who are you then to think you know? Okay. If that man, that great man, is saying he doesn't know. So it was incredible experience. You, you, you pay the price for the mistakes. That's what you do. You're 32, 35. Even at 50, I'm still making mistakes. But hopefully not the same ones. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Damien, and for sharing all those insights with us. Thank you for inviting me.
Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.